You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. I invite you to turn in the scriptures to the book of Mark again, chapter 13. We're entering a new chapter today, Mark 13. On your way there, uh, we'll show our picture from last week. We had Dick Persons uh, with us, and Lincoln turned... I think Lincoln was the only one last week, so you won, Lincoln. And uh, here's two of his pictures side by side. Love. You got the message. Love is patient. Love takes time. And love your neighbor as God loved you. Thank you, Lincoln, for reminding us again of that. And... uh, it's great, great to read and, and a good reminder we had last week of that kind of love, the same love that God showed to us. Uh, as you're turning to Mark 13, we normally just read, let me just give a little bit of background for where, where we're going. <clears throat> for the next four weeks, that's a 80% guess, four weeks only, but uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. We're going to be getting into some challenging waters dealing with Christ's return. Uh, Not a challenge for Christ at all, uh, but we can feel challenged to sort out the various details that we find in the books, all the books of the Bible, and it's it's not just in Mark that we're going to be uh, reading about, you know, when the end is and this glorious return of Jesus and, and all these sorts of things. But as I seek to preach expository sermons, meaning we're just going book by book through the Bible, New Testament, probably hit an Old Testament book the next, the next round, but verse by verse, chapter, so forth, uh, we come to Mark 13 and we must deal with really the words of Jesus through this chapter. So we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 today. I'm going to get to that and I want to but I want to also, before we do that, is to read the entire chapter to you so that you hear the, the whole context of the chapter. You know uh, where we've been actually at the last, at our camp out and baptism. We were at the end of chapter 12 and this, this widow that gave um, her two mites or lept, lepton, whatever, and uh, gave, gave all she had really uh, in the temple area. And now comes chapter 13. So I want to read the entirety of it to you. As we read, we're just listening for what God says through here. Hear repeated words, phrases, things that stand out, connections. And uh, I hope even as you uh, anticipate next week and so forth, as we stay in this chapter, that you would, you would read it again and search these things like the Bereans on your own. Search the scriptures. So let me read the chapter to us. And then we'll, we'll move towards 1 through 13 here. So here's what it says. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, 
and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let me pray for us. Lord, we've just read a lengthy passage. I imagine... 
For those that have not read it recently, perhaps many questions come up. What? When? How? Signs? Father, uh, as we seek to study this passage, I pray you would work mightily in our hearts. Lord, I pray you'd give an understanding of what we need to understand. Lord, maybe not what we want to understand, but what we need from these words in order to live for your sake, for the name of Jesus. So, Lord, I pray you'd impact my feeble words with your Holy Spirit to work in our time together, that we would worship you in our time and our, in the Word together. May you bless this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In uh, 1993, I was in the summer of 1993. I spent two months in the country of Niger, Niger, you might know it, uh, West Africa, as kind of a. I was post. It was after my sophomore year of high school. Went over there to be with a missionary agency and look at, you know, maybe missionary aviation. Maybe I would fly and do missions someday. And it was kind of a this two-month-long period. And where we stayed in the capital city of Niamey, we stayed in this house and it's kind of like what dick shared last week about there's walls you know there was a house and a couple houses behind us but around the whole perimeter was a kind of a wall-like structure uh, uh, that sort of thing and most commonly missionaries and those people with houses like that would hire a guard for the night Uh, our particular guard's name was sally fu and sally fu and i became friends but we became friends on his last night uh, at the compound because Sally Fu had a problem with being a guard. He would fall asleep. And uh, it's not good if you're going to hire a guard. You want a guard that's awake and alert. You, know, you think of what we look for in guards. We want them to be up and, and patrolling and understanding what threats there are and seeing the movement. And maybe we're looking in trees or we're patching up things in the wall or we're looking for places that are, that are vulnerable to our security. Sally Fu uh, fell asleep and that was no good. But I became good friends with him. I, was, I think I felt sorry for him. And we had a great relationship. And he took me to some, quite the places. I almost got married. Someone wanted to marry me so they could come back. Uh, glad that didn't happen. But uh, yeah, all sorts of things with Sally Fu. But uh, you think of guards that way. And we look for guards that are not asleep. And so as we're studying this uh, over the next four weeks you've seen in your sermon notes be on guard that's kind of what i'm using as kind of the the setting here i'm going to see if this works there it is that we would be on guard and i think we're going to look at different aspects of this idea but this this being on guard being watchful being careful uh this idea of being on guard so that's kind of where we're going to go these next few weeks as we look through chapter 13 But before we get into this section, that's why I say eventually we're going to get there, let me just attempt a bit of a broad kind of brushstroke regarding the subject of this chapter. Different words might describe this chapter. If you want to use a real technical word, we might be talking about eschatology. That's simply just eschaton, meaning last in Greek. So it's the study of the last things, eschatology. If you want to be real smart, you can say I'm studying eschatology. Or just the last days or the end times, there's thoughts of that, thoughts of the second coming of Christ. We might think, as we start thinking about second coming, we might think book of Revelation. We're thinking about horses and beasts and war and new heavens and new earth and all these different thoughts. 
it's a big subject and uh, it's a big area. There are books you could read for a year and more on all the books written about how to figure this out and looking at all these and you can some people have charts and they know when and this and they're trying or they're trying to know when and looking at it and look at this event and I'm reading the paper and I'm seeing all these sorts of things and so we're trying to sort out Lord what what's the end what's going on how will this end or when when are you coming and what are some of the signs of that um, our statement of faith says this here's our statement of faith it says this about what we believe as a church about the end times and um, some places it doesn't get very specific and I appreciate that but here's what it says at the end of the age Jesus Christ will return to this earth personally visibly physically and suddenly in power and great glory to translate his church from this earth and so the saints shall always be with the Lord we teach the bodily resurrection of all men the saved to an eternal life in God's presence, and the unsaved to judgment and everlasting punishment cut off from the life of God forever. It's about as specific as it gets, that we know that Jesus Christ will return, in those words, personally, visibly, physically, suddenly, from the Scriptures here is where we're getting that from. But there's not greater details. You know, with, with the thousand years, the millennium, different things like that, it's not as detailed. And I think that's for good reason because we as individuals are saying we're looking at the Scriptures and we're to search and I think we're to say, okay, here's what I believe Scripture to be teaching. But we want to be careful uh, in being too dogmatic at least about some of the specific things. I want you to hear from some other writers on this as, I, as we think about this topic of the last times and eschatology so that we start this journey of four weeks or so, on the best footing. Some of these are going to be more extended quotes. I think I've got most of them here on the slide, so you can kind of read along with me. Um, Here's the first one from a commentator. I've used a lot as we go through Mark. His name is James Edwards, and he says this. As we're kind of, we're thinking about the broad scope again of as we study the last things, as we think about the end times What's a good footing? What's a good foundation as we begin this studying that we want to keep coming back to and try to be anchored to? He says this, The purpose of the eschatological, see now you know, now, now we're all on board here, discourse in Mark 13 is not primarily to provide a timetable or blueprint for the future so much as to exhort readers to faithful discipleship in the present. No one is either encouraged or commended for attempting to be an eschatological code cracker. That's folly. For even the Son of Man is ignorant of the end. We read that today, verse 32. The premium of discipleship is placed not on predicting the future, but on faithfulness in the present, especially in trials, adversity, and suffering. Did you catch that? The, the premium is placed not on can you predict it? You got it all down. You got this verse, but then you put in this and then you, and you, get, you got it all right. Is that, is that the goal or is it more the idea of faithfulness in the present where you are, trials, adversity, suffering, looking towards that time when Jesus will come? I appreciate that perspective. How about another one here? This is from Martin Lloyd-Jones. 
he says this. Now, he's talking generally. He's not talking about Mark 13 in general, the idea of the last times. He says, we shall not approach this teaching uh, theoretically or academically or as if we were trying to fit in the parts of a jigsaw puzzle and establish a theory. Let us rather approach it as we are exhorted to do by the Scriptures. It is something that should rejoice our hearts, should comfort us, should stimulate us to holy living. Now, I didn't put it up here, but he's got a rather extended quote. And just listen. He's going to go through the right and wrong way to think about the last times and the end times and all those sorts of things. Here's what he said. Quote, There is a right way and a wrong way to study this great doctrine. And if you want to be sure that you're doing it in the right way, this is an infallible test. If your study of it humbles you, your study is in the right way. If it inflates you or inflames your mind and your passion, you're studying it in the wrong way. If the study of it leads you to go down on your knees in worship and adoration and praise, it is the right way. But if it gives you a sense of self-satisfaction that you have understood it and, as it were, have encompassed the thing with your own mind, then it is utterly and absolutely wrong. If your study of it makes you realize that the time is short and that you must be up and doing, that you must purify yourself and prepare yourself for it, then you are studying in the right way. But if it is something purely intellectual and it does not affect your spirit and your way of living, then you can be certain that your whole approach is wrong. This is not a subject for the mind only. It is for the whole person is the ultimate end of salvation. It is the completion of all that we have hitherto been privileged to consider together. May God give us grace, therefore, to approach this glorious truth in that way. There's in these quotes the push for us as we consider these end times that our, our lives as disciples of Christ be affected presently, in the present, we're not to be, I appreciate that, code crackers, but Jesus worshipers. He's the focus of the study of who will come again. Um, one last quote here. <clears throat> this is from Timothy Paul Jones in a study, and he's got a book. I mean, there's many books out there, four views of this, three views of that, so forth and so forth. You can look those up. Here's what he says, and, and I bring it out. Just hopefully all of these are helpful to you. As you read, I mean, not only Mark 13, but Revelation or Isaiah or Ezekiel or just different books that we're reading that deal with these end times that we're thinking of them in a, in a Christ-focused way. Here's what he says. Jesus is the goal and end point of God's plan for history. If the end time is a puzzle, Jesus is the corner pieces. These guys like to use the puzzle language here. Only when Jesus stands in the most prominent places can the end times puzzle begin to make sense. Now he goes on to say, I got it? There it is. I'll read it, small print. He says, increased anticipation of the glory of Jesus may end up being dangerous. Listen to this call on us as we study some of these things. It may be dangerous. He says, but not in any way that will land you in the middle of an apocalyptic cult. It's dangerous because whenever Jesus becomes central, life as usual ends up disrupted. Can I read that again? 
It's dangerous because whenever Jesus becomes central, life as usual ends up disruptive. Where the glory of Jesus is central, the allures of consumerism and self-centered goals and the culture's profile for success lose their luster. This is dangerous in the same way that Jesus himself was dangerous. It's dangerous because once Jesus truly shows up, nothing can remain the same as it was before. Do you hear what he's saying? I think it's some of the same things we've seen all along in the book of Mark. So we continue here that we see Jesus, Jesus, and we anticipate his coming and his glory. Um, I did bring, since they brought up so many ideas, I did bring a jigsaw puzzle. We're not going to put it together this morning. But just to give you an idea of what this is like, you know, if I took off the, the cover of this, I think the piece, this we have not done yet. But it's, it's all wrapped up. But you see, I mean, all the pieces in there. And that's what, our, that's what our study can be like. And as your pastor and as I'm studying this, I can feel like I've got to get all these pieces. And you know, where do I start? How do we do that? There's books, there's sections. How does this relate to this? What about this? There's some of what we've learned uh, before, some of what we're learning now, all these sorts of things. How do we do that? And yet we can try to put all the pieces together without what these guys are talking about and this encouragement is to not miss, not miss the, the picture. You know, on here it's a picture of a house with a bunch of rooms that are kind of side cut and you can see all the rooms. But you could get so focused on each room here and each area, and the rapture at this time, and the thousand years here, and this sort of thing. And I think those are good things because they're scriptural. We need to be studying. So don't hear, you know, I'll just, whatever, however it goes. Don't he- I think we should study hard and strong. But we can miss that there's an, actual, an outline of a house here. And to enjoy that there's a house. There's an outline to what this, these end times are about. In fact, there's a person they're about. And that, again, is Jesus, that we would worship him. And so there's something more important than just figuring it all out, that our eyes would be on the, on the Savior and prepared to walk with him through whatever suffering we will face to proclaim his name. And so we come to verse 1. I won't take that long uh, as we go. It's going to be a little bit shortened here, but... We want to look at verses 1 through 13 then. Look at this first part and seek and do our best to understand what's here. Focus on the things we understand, what we don't. We say, okay, Lord, we're just going to trust you with that. Um, Let me read verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. We're still on that Tuesday of the Passover week before Jesus would endure the cross on Friday. He's been dealing, as we ha- we've seen, questions in the temple. And now they depart from the temple and these disciples comment on its beauty. And it was beautiful. I had a picture up here. I passed by it. It might not be big enough, but you can see a little bit. We've seen it before. I mean, it's a magnificent structure. And I don't think we even understand just how beautiful it was. Um, some of my reading, Herod who was working on this temple, I think it was about finished uh, time of Jesus here, 
um, it was double the size of Solomon's temple. So if you think Solomon's temple was great, this was, you know, let's just double it. So it's doubled the size. It's a magnificent place. You can see why these guys would say, this is a wonderful stone. This is a wonderful building here. And they, the stones were massive. It was a sight to behold. But here's Jesus then in verse 2, and he answers them. You know, they're looking, what wonderful buildings. And he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Not a stone left upon a stone. They will be thrown down. They will be destroyed. And in fact, they were, in a sense. In 70 AD, Jewish zealots led a rebellion against Rome in the city of Jerusalem. Here's what one historian, um, N.R. Needham, he summarizes this destruction like this. Just listen to what happened because this, what Jesus predicted did take place in around 70 A.D. Here's what he says. The zealots, so that's an, another Jewish group, you know, Pharisees, Sadducees, zealots. They're zealous for the nation. They led a, they led a mighty nationalist uprising against the Roman Empire. Lasting from A.D. 66 to 73. Okay, so if Christ is maybe in the, the crucified, 30, 33, somewhere around there. Um, you get an idea, maybe 30 years later, something like that. After the most appalling bloodshed, Rome's armies totally crushed the revolt, almost completely destroyed Jerusalem, and reduced the temple to a pile of smoldering ruins. The loss of Jewish life was horrific. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was alive at the time and wrote a history of the Jewish war, estimated that uh, 1,100,000 Jews were killed in the fighting and 97,000 taken captive and then sold into slavery or put to death for sport in the Roman arenas. So there was a fulfillment to Jesus' words here. A judgment would come upon this city and temple in which the Son of God was slain. And as we read on, certain indicators would be signs of this destruction. Look at verses 3 through 4 here in your, in, in your scriptures. As he sat, now, now we've moved scenes. Now they're sitting as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Uh, I was reading Alfred Edersheim and he describes this scene of these guys sitting on this, this Mount of Olives looking towards back towards the temple, looking back towards Jerusalem, and he gives just a great description of what they, just think of them sitting on the hill looking back at this place. He says, just then the western sun was pouring his golden beams on top of marble cloisters and on the terraced courts and glittering on the golden spikes on the roof of the holy place. In the setting, even more than in the rising sun, must the vast proportions, the symmetry, and the sparkling sheen of this mass of snowy marble and gold have stood out gloriously. It must have been quite the sight as Jesus then hears these questions privately of the disciples. And their question relates then, I think, to the destruction of the temple. When is this going to take place? What are the signs of these things taking place? Matthew gives us a little more on these things. 
But nonetheless, we see the sign of these things taking place. It's a natural question any of us would ask. If somebody said, uh, Washington, D.C. is going to be destroyed, the White House is going to be destroyed, that sort of thing, we would say, uh, how do you know, you know, when, how will we know this is coming? When will this be? That sort of thing. So they ask. But it's interesting they ask also about a sign. There's an expectation that a, a sign would accompany these things. What comes next, and we're going to look over them briefly, but in verses 5 then through 13, through the end of our section, at least for this morning, there's five commands, maybe four, maybe two of them are kind of together, four or five commands of Jesus that he lays down for his disciples. And we want to listen to these. But what makes this chapter difficult, at least for us, I'll just say for me, is how to understand the when of these things. Is Jesus simply speaking here about this period of 70 A.D., just when the temple was destroyed? That is, some people view that and say it's just just that time period. Uh, Others, myself included, would say there's something more uh, going on here. So in other words, which signs then, as we read through this, this is where it gets, and I'm thankful. As you read the commentaries, this is one of the most difficult passages. Okay, all right, it's hard. It's just hard to understand. But which signs here relate to the destruction of the temple? And then which of these look towards the end, the final, the end judgment? Christ returns, that glorious return. One illustration I came across was the illustration of a telescope. And I don't have a telescope to show you, but I do have a portable coffee filter uh, that you can do a pour over with coffee in. And it's cool because it's flat like this. But in order to make the coffee, you gotta, you know, you can... You can spring it up, and there's cups that are made like this. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a telescope, so just go along with it, okay? Um, we can look at chapter, our verses 5 through 13, and just say it's, it's flat. It's just the destruction of the temple, which I think it's pointing to. It's, the disciples would know about that. However, there's that idea of a telescoping of the prophecy of what's going on, so that there's, there's an explanation in here, of things that would happen with the destruction, and yet they telescope that, that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem actually are kind of a foreshadowing, a type of what will happen in the end times, that we see this, and it's to spur us and to say, okay, those same signs are going to be here. That's kind of the idea, if that helps you, because we wait. We read our statement of faith, and we see in the Scriptures, Jesus Christ will come, Physically, visibly, personally, suddenly, we're still waiting for that to take place, though many, like he predicted, have claimed to be Christ. But we wait. So we've used this phrase before, if it's helpful to you, there's an already and not yet. It's a common phrase scholars use thinking of these things. There's an already in the destruction of the temple. It already happened. But there's a, the end is not yet. It's yes, but not yet. That sort of idea going on that's the best explanation and and uh, hopefully helpful to you so seeking to be kind of brief we're just going to look through these commands because we want to get back what were our foundations how do we live how do we live in the present as disciples because we know the final end has not taken place yet so let's look at these commands as they would have related to the disciples of the day and as they relate to us as disciples of any age living for the name of Jesus. Those that would claim the name of Jesus, let's listen up and hear what he would speak to us. 
So some of these come in. I'll just try to list them out as we go. We won't read this chapter, but the first one, verses 5 through 6. Maybe you can find the command in your, your own version of the Scriptures that you have. Uh, in the ESV it says, See that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. There's a command. See. In other words, look, this verses 5 and 6, look to Jesus alone. Don't look to the imposters. The Greek word here for to see, so see that no one leads you astray, it's the same word that comes later in verse 9 where it says be on guard. It's the same kind of root word there. So I think we can assume with and take that idea of be on guard that somebody does not lead you astray. Many false teachers are going to spring up. They're going to say, I'm he, and they're going to lead many astray. I mean, you can do a quick Wikipedia search and look this up, but there's, I looked it up, there's some 34 names, and this is Wikipedia, it's not like a necessarily Christian uh, research site, some 34 names that, that claim either they were the second coming of Jesus or they're the Messiah. That's just looking up real briefly on, on Wikipedia. Suffice it to say, Jesus was exactly right. He knew what would happen. Many and many continue to proclaim Messiahship to themselves. We are to, the disciples are to, see that no one leads you astray. Follow Christ alone. Which Christ? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom the Scriptures speak of. Do not go after another Savior. Another command, verses 7 through 8. Don't be alarmed. You hear of wars, rumors of wars. Do not be alarmed. When you see disasters and famines and wars, understand these are birth pains going on of earthly wars. And let these uh, lead us back to what's really going on. You think of birth pains and what they lead to. What do birth pains lead to? They lead to birth. Uh, and I would submit, in, in one way of thinking, this is just speculation here, but the beginning of the birth pains that we're seeing is the beginning of the final judgment. What they, what's delivered by these birth pains? Final judgment uh, that comes upon this world for not worshiping Jesus. And so when they, when we see these birth pains, these wars, let them lead us back to worship our Savior who saves us from the wrath and judgment to come. When we see, you hear wars, rumors of wars even today, things going on, earthquakes, floods, hurricanes, those sorts of things, they can be a reminder to us, okay? So we're, we're thinking again about our discipleship, a reminder, judgment is coming on this world. There will be wrath poured out by a holy God for sin. Am I right with Him? Are he and I reconciled or am I still apart from him? And who's the name to be saved? Jesus. We call on Jesus, confessing our sins and looking to him. So don't be alarmed. And how we, we don't have to be alarmed. Say, I know the Savior. I know Jesus. There's blood that covers my sin. Verses 9 through 10, another one. So we've got... Uh, Five through six, there's see that no one leads you astray, or in other words, look to Jesus alone. Another command, don't be alarmed. You're going to see lots of things. Don't let it, don't be alarmed. I'm telling you beforehand. But then here we come to our phrase again, number or verse nine, but be on your guard. Be on guard. 
you will be delivered up, you will be put on trial, you'll be beaten for whose sake? For my sake. For the sake of Christ. Here's again, James Edwards says this. The point of this phrasing, this idea of being delivered up to these councils and beaten in synagogues and standing before governors and all these, all these sorts of things. He says, the point is to rid believers of utopian fantasies and remind them, and I'd say remind us, right? Remind them that adversity and persecution are not, are not aberrations of the Christian life, but rather the norm. You face adversity and trial, it's not abnormal for the Christian life. And we, we want to say, I, just, just a week of normal. I just want a normal. I, I, that's not what Scripture is presenting. There are things that are going to take place. And part of the gospel proclamation, of verse 10 even, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations, comes through persecution. Acts 8 records the persecution of Stephen. And, and after that, uh, it says in Acts 8, 1, they, that is the church, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. A persecution of Stephen. He was persecuted. We would say, that's not good. And, and it's not. It's not a good thing. But it did something and it spread that church out from there. And God used it. Little did they know who would persecute Stephen, what they had done. They had sent the church out to Judea and Samaria. It went, the gospel went forth through the persecution of the church. Applying this, we too can look at difficulty and trial as appointed times of sharing Christ. I think we want to look at them and say, I can't preach Christ. I'm in this trial. I'm suffering right now. Th- those are the times to preach Christ. And maybe we need to first preach Him to ourselves and preach the gospel to ourselves to remember and then preach it to others, that we would use these times. First um, Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. You can write that down, but it says this. First Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, and this is Paul speaking. Let me start again. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. To declare the gospel in the midst of conflict. I think we just want to think, wait till everything's peaceful and then I'll get to sharing the gospel. It's No, in the midst of that, share the gospel. It's really the norm of the church. Okay, now the, the next two that are really, I think, combined, they're in verse 11. Um, I'll just read it here. Verse 11 in our text, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, here's another command, do not be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say. So that's where the two commands, don't be anxious, but say. They're kind of kind of connect, connected there. Say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. In one way, we see this fulfilled in Acts 4, as Peter and John, they're before the, really the leaders of the Jewish people, the rulers, scribes, high priests, and they're speaking that says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And he goes on to speak of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he says that familiar verse to us, Acts 4.12, There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He, he proclaims it and he's filled with the Holy Spirit. We see this, what Jesus is predicting and looking at, we see it in Peter, at least in Acts 4 there, amongst other places where God is at work. The people where Peter talked to, they were amazed. He says we're, they're uneducated, common men, and yet they're bold, and they recognize that they had been with Jesus. The last command, it's not really a... Yeah, because that's five. It's not really a command, but it's, the, it's really the last verses here, and I'll just read those as well, verses 12 through 13. I think that's kind of a... Think of it as a, as a grim outlook. Well... Yes, but we know a great Savior. Verse 12, And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who endures to the end will be saved. There's a call here for endurance, to persevere. Families, they're going to turn on one another. Brother will deliver brother. Father a child, a child to his parents, and so forth. Endure. In some ways, we can be comforted that that we knew this was going to happen. This is part of counting the cost. You understand, this could happen. You could lose your family. You know, we were talking with um, some of our family this week and thinking about that, that people, at least in the Middle East, that come to know Jesus, they're going to lose it all. I don't think we in America understand it like that, but lose it all to take Christ. But it goes on to say you'll be hated by all. So it's not just a family danger, but there's a danger in the world. But endure in all this for who? And I love how verse 13, you'll be hated by all for what? For what purpose? For my name's sake. For the purpose of my name. For the name of Jesus. The name of Christ. So we're to endure and persevere by the one who powerfully works within us. To endure to the end. I don't think this means we, we gain our salvation by enduring, but we, He gives us the power and we endure. We persevere by the faith He's given us to the end. So as regards the timing and the wind and the jigsaw pieces, I'm, I'm more vague, and I'm sure we'll be studying through this. I encourage you to read through this. But what we do have before us, recorded by Mark, is to endure to the very end. And we have these words. So we need to be on our guard, not be led astray to false saviors. Those saviors can come in many different ways. There can be a person, yes, maybe our favorite Bible teacher on the radio, we've got to be careful. We want to listen to them, but be careful. Or other things that become a Savior to us, a good job or retirement, all these things. We want to be on our guard. We want to not be alarmed at birth pains of a world that will face final judgment. Don't be alarmed. Hey, we, we knew this. Use it. You see these? There's hurricanes, there's floods, all these things. We know judgment's coming. Are you ready? to meet the Lord. Proclaim. Be on your guard and proclaim the gospel amidst suffering. 
Don't wait till it's all peaceful. And don't be anxious about what to say, but speak by the Holy Spirit. And so we endure and we persevere for the sake of Christ Jesus. I'm going to close today reading uh, from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2 to kind of sum this up and, and give us a call uh, in the 2 Timothy 2, starting at verse 1. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Your child of God, be strengthened by His grace. Verse 2, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. See this normal? Suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything. I endure for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. We're not closing today with a song, so I would just ask you to stand and we're going to pray as we close out our service today and ask God to help us to endure to the end. Lord, I'm thankful for each one that is here today to hear from your word and understand we might not have the jigsaw puzzle all put together, but we know the maker of the puzzle. We know the one who will come again. We know Jesus. We don't know how it's all going to happen, but we know who. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation would be prepared to suffer for the sake of your name. Each one of us, Lord, in our hearts that we say, I will follow the Lord whether it hurts me or not. We'd be willing to go before councils and have trials take place. And we'd not be anxious, but we'd speak as the Holy Spirit gives us words. That in the midst of conflict and calamity, we would preach the gospel. We wouldn't be silent, but we'd preach it out. That we would see uh, birth pains going on around us and proclaim, the judge is coming, be saved, be reconciled. So, Lord, in all these things, would you help us to be those types of disciples of Jesus, ready to, to lose it all, to lose our lives for your sake. And, Lord, may we as a church body right here at Bethany, right in Leroy, may we encourage one another with these truths. And when one of us has fallen down, may we come alongside and say, Dear brother, dear sister, look to the Savior. Cling Hold fast to Jesus. 
guide us as we go out from here, that we would be a light to the nations, the glory of God. We pray together. We all say,